A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 50. We're talking chapter 48 through 50. Hey there, this is Cross. I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. So I just want to be clear, because Crossland was unclear during that intro. We are reading Brandon Sanderson's Well of Ascension. Did I say Mistborn? No, you just didn't say the book. No, <laughs> I mean, whatever. Chapter 15. You clicked on the title, damn it. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I know it says it says all that in the title, but just to make sure, in case you didn't, in case you didn't know, also mm-hmm. doubly in case you didn't know, today is our tenth episode discussing the Well of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters forty-eight through fifty. But before we do that, PJ, let's talk about what we're drinking. What are you having today? Oh, I no. Oh, did anybody give me a name yet? I think you just got tiki bullshit. I got tiki bullshit. We already have a drink named Tiki Bullshit, mm-hmm. so I don't. I don't know what to call this. It's it's a whole lot of stuff. That's the name. <laughs> it's a whole lot of stuff. So, essentially, I knew that I would be reconciling a lot of predictions. So, I needed something with volume. And if you want volume, you just put juice in it. So, I went with I went with more tiki drinks this week. So, are you ready? Are you ready for this bullshit? <laughs> aye aye, captain. <laughs> All right. 2 ounces of rum. One or one half ounce of rye, one half ounce of port, one ounce of lemon juice, two ounces of pineapple juice, half an ounce of orgeau, half an ounce of grenadine, half an ounce of passion fruit syrup, half an ounce of cinnamon syrup, three do- drops of vanilla extract, six drops of tiki bitters, and a garnish of mint sprig and lemon twist. How's it taste? Fucking delicious, dude. It's super sweet. It's super boozy. Like, it is uh ruby and cinnamony and everything that i want and i'm gonna be happy to drink as many times as i have to for all those goddamn predictions it's true there are there are a number of those that came true over the course of this last week last week rather and then like one or two this week as well fantastic that sounds really tasty what's your back half beer I think it's the same as last week, or I had it when I was chatting with you. I can't remember which, but Coffee Cake from Portage. Mm. It's a coffee blonde ale with vanilla beans and cinnamon and coffee. Cool. So That sounds tasty. It is. It's very good. Yeah, so I think you said it drinks like it. It reminded you of... Um... Banshee Cutter. Yes, yes, yes. And then we ended up talking about that for a bit. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, yep, yep. Cool. What are you drinking? Well, man, I, since last week, have still not had time to go to the grocery store to to refresh beer supply. I actually did have time to go get citrus and other things like that and, like, food, of course. But I didn't think to grab beer, and I, I just haven't. So instead of making one cocktail, I made two. 
And they're both originals, which is even extra, extra crazy. So crafted two, and they're both winners, which is great. So the first one is a Manhattan-style cocktail called Quan's Last Gambit, is what I'm naming it here. Because at the very end, the logbook that we <laughs> read at the end talks about his last gamble. So, you know, we have to dress it up in the words and whiskey suit and call it a gambit. That is composed, it's really, it's a really simple cocktail. Two ounces aged rum. Half an ounce dry curacao, half an ounce Burnett, Fernet Branca, and an orange twist to garnish. Super tasty, stirred, and then poured over a... I just dropped a rocks in it to keep it cold for the duration of the show, but you can you can serve... It's a Manhattan-style cocktail, so if you want to water it down, feel free to drop it in. If not, drink it straight. It's super tasty. It's a spin on a different Fernet cocktail called Away Colors, which generally include, includes like a banana liqueur and... Yeah, it, it includes a banana liqueur as opposed to dry curacao. So, okay. That was my gotcha. flip out. Yeah. Good deal. And then cocktail number two, back half cocktail, <laughs> is um, I'm calling it Amaranta's Antidote. So originally I was thinking of a couple of different things and I wanted, I always I'm looking to use green chartreuse now. It's like my new thing that I want to just try in as many things as possible and kind of try to add to the drink repertoire that exists behind green chartreuse. A lot of gin drinks, a lot of vodka drinks because that fla- that like people are trying to bring out that flavor profile. So I figured let's do tequila drink. So what I'm calling Amaranta's antidote is composed of one ounce tequila, quarter ounce green chartreuse, quarter ounce maraschino, three quarter ounce lemon juice, and two dashes of Angostura bitter shaken, of course, because it's uh, citrus to get all that expressed. And then generally garnished with a lemon peel, me dumbass did the did the squeeze peel thing and then threw it over my shoulder into the sink and i was like you fire dumb and so i didn't actually garnish it with it but i did spray the oils (laughs) 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 i tried it without the bitters and it wasn't quite as good it needed a little bit more development so dropping the bitters in was actually huge and it brings out that chartreuse it's a this is maybe my best cocktail since the ramos fizz twist the blue ramos fizz twist so nice for a paradox hotel right 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 the john soda one so so tasty so good this one is so good they're both so good the one's just manhattan style so it's like very booze forward very great yeah yeah cool i'm i need to get some chartreuse yeah try some of these i i man i'm i'm liking chartreuse i'm liking mm-hmm. campari are we surprised that, that i like the semi-better things i can i can get behind that you might notice just to cut back a little bit my drink is without lime. <laughs> I chose lemon juice instead of lime juice because limes are so goddamn expensive right now. And for whatever reason, impossible to find. I was reading into it a little bit. There's speculation that it has something to do with like a cartel stranglehold on lime production out of Mexico. Don't know what truth that has, but yeah, the limes are more expensive than the lemons here right now, which I've never seen before. So that's been fun. So I've been I've been doing what I can to choose lemon instead. What's hilarious to me is how good some of these article titles are. Right. Oh, are you looking this up right now? Yeah. So one of them one of them that's like really near the top of the list says Bar owners left bitter as lime prices soar, and it's like. (laughs) 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 Mm. Oh, the full title, but inflation isn't what's leaving the sour taste. (laughs) (laughs) 
there's another one from February. Mexico lime inflation leaves a sour taste as cartels gouge prices. Oh my god. Anyway, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's too good. Too good. It's crazy. Fun fact, I bought those limes and I was like, oh yeah, I got limes. I got limes. No problem. I was originally going to make the uh, amaranta with lime and then i cut open my lime and i go to squeeze it and it's like just the pulp you know what i mean like it doesn't actually like no juice you know it hit that point yeah and then i went to do a second one and it also had the same problem so i'm like hmm uh oh (laughs) (laughs) is it just like an old lime supply then Uh, maybe that that that's the closest thing that i can get to an assumption is that they're like older limes so yeah that's just weird (laughs) that is just the way it's kind of just the way it went I thought it was very funny. Cool. All right. Unlike our usual format, this is back to like early Red Rising days. We are going to jump into last week's predictions right away here. So first up, first up question. We've got a lot to go through. So folks, hang on to your hang on to your pants. PJ's going to get real drunk real quick. Um, <laughs> it's going to make for a chaotic episode. It's going to be it's going to be an interesting one. Needless to say, we only have to read like three chapters so we don't have to make it very long all you got to do is survive this so pj the final components of this chapter here comes from a soldier and through captain Nimu, bring us something new a mystery of where this extra set of bones came from it's a shock as they assume that there's a good chance that it is one of the crew members who do you think could be the imposter among us you said i really really fucking hate that you just copied and pasted what i what i wrote (laughs) Isn't that the worst? Can Chandra imitate other Chandra? How wild would that be? <laughs> but really, I think it's not an, an actual crew member, but rather one of the assemblymen. That's <laughs> that's a drink for PJ. But I am going to take a drink because you were like, oh, <laughs> PJ is sneezing. PJ is dying. I tried to be I, dramatic and make a slurping noise off the top of my drink, <laughs> and instead, I just aspirated. <laughs> whatever tiki bullshit this is into my lungs directly (laughs) good work good Mm. work i i am also going to take a drink though because your conjure imitating conjure thing fucking threw me when you even like made that as a joke of a guess because when if you go back to that episode what you said is like wouldn't it be cool if like conjure could imitate conjure and it's like in my head i'm i'm just staring deadpan right at you like are you fucking kidding me this would be one of those moments where i would like when we didn't have the cameras on where i would just hit the pot pause on the mic button and go you gotta be fucking shitting me dude like what the fuck is that yes yeah. uh yep. no did that come so. up at all in the no pj zone of course it did <laughs> that was almost immediately like did he really fucking figure it out like did he really figure it out in like the second episode third episode <laughs> I'll, I'm gonna be real honest. Didn't remember I said that. Yeah, straight up. Like that's that's just how this goes for me. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the things I say <laughs> most of the time. Fair, fair point. <laughs> All right. From there, we move on to the next <clears throat> one, which we have here. Just kind of a question statement. Tindwell, what do you make of her assertions on Ellen's character, and what do you see her role in the story being? You said. I think she's pretty spot on regarding Ellen's character. He has not acted like a king, and for that, he's been taken advantage of during talks. He also hasn't felt like a king, and the lessons here fairly quickly help that self-perception. She will be important to the story in the immediate as a way of unifying the leadership under Ellen, but in the long run, I think there's some ulterior motives at play. And? I, I I think I'm kind of right in that. 
I think you're kind of right. The only thing that I think you're off on is the ulterior motives. I don't think that there's anything ulterior about what she was doing, really. Yeah. So I'll agree with that completely. What I will choose to do, because the first half of what you said is very correct, I think. I will take a drink for that, but you're taking a drink for the back half prediction. Deal. Cheers. Cheers. I'm not cool. going to try to be dramatic about it anymore. Like my, That's my, a fair point. My throat hurts. We'll just answer bubbling. <laughs> um, PJ, read the next bold, brazen prediction that you made off the cuff. Ellen proposing again to Vin based on these feelings expressed with Tindwell. Nope. Bless you. This came during the episode at the dress shop when we were talking about the dress shop in that chapter and when they were kind of sharing the, the conversation. Of, I believe it's the dress shop. Uh, that or or right. thereabouts. It's like thereabouts. Thereab- around there. Um, and so right around there is when they had that conversation and you were like, and it was a question about like, will Ellen maybe propose again? Like, what do you think? And you're like, Ellen, or no, you just made the assumption based on the way that the feelings and conversation were, was going that he was going to make that proposal again. And yeah. that is wrong. <laughs> it is. So that's a, that's a drink for you, buddy. All right. Next up was another bold assertion in kind of the, the midst of an episode. And this is one of those that like feels weird to pull out because it's like, well, are we ever going to have like full family trees or any shit like that? But I still feel like we can pretty confidently assert that at the very least, it's not a plot point. You made the exclamation that Zane would be related to Vin. I still think it's true, but I'll drink for it. I don't know. At what point you think we're going to get that answer? <laughs> well, because I think it's also going to come to light that Ellen is related to Vin. That'd be extra messy. No. Mm. Yeah. Yep. I think cool. that's the case. Why a book? Siblings. Super duper incesty. Got it. Yep. 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 <laughs> Right. Okay, next up is a question that I did ask. What do you make of their conversation that they have at the end of the chapter discussing his belief in the church? Do you believe that he's the Chandra, he being Demu? This was where I you decided that you're going to put your flag in the sand for who you thought the Chandra was. Yeah, and even the way I like this is written out is not committed, but... And I quote, it's tough. I don't know. Fuck. Yes, for the sake of prediction, I think he's the Chandra. And Demu is not the Chandra. That's a that's a drinky poo for PJ. Yep. <laughs> One drinky poo, two drinky poos. All right. Anyway. All right. Next up, and the final prediction that we have to go through this week is after she chases him down, they stop and have a conversation for a moment. Our watcher defines himself as insane as a part of the reason that he had let her live. What do you make of his statements here? Uh, the fact that he defines himself as as insane, along with all the other comments about how he rivals Kelsier in skill, really made me feel like this was Kelsier himself. And while I think it could be a possibility, I think Vin would be able to see through any disguise Kelsier would put on, unless Kelsier is a Chandra somehow. But ultimately, I've got another guess. This is Reen. So... The the last little bit of that being the imperative one, that Zane is actually Reen. Honestly, I'm kind of upset that he wasn't. Or at least that hasn't been revealed yet. Okay. 
<laughs> if it's revealed at some point, I'll, I will definitely take the two drinks that are prerequisite for any of those moments that come <laughs> back. Right, fair enough. Uh, there's one other one that I wanted to bring up that I think that we paid off previously, and I don't remember who drank for it, and I couldn't couldn't find it. Maybe it was just kind of a rogue a rogue thought, rogue prediction. But it was regarding all Rianne and her having ulterior motives, being like a spy inside of the mm-hmm. city. And I think this week we get the answer that really that's not the case for the most part. She's not really. I don't think that's true at all. Okay. We'll get it. What? Yeah. She immediately goes back and like shares information with her dad. Of course she was the spy. I think that that's a little bit of a bigger assertion than you're, you, you were want to make it. I was going to take a drink because I think that I asked too leading of a question. Um, okay. But if you're going to contest me on this, fuck you. I'm not going to contest you. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) No, like we get the motivation, like we get the understanding that she actually has genuine feelings for Breeze. Mm -hmm. Kind of. Kind of. What do you mean kind of? Because she she talks so openly or think so openly about his manipulation how like how much of fun it was to have that challenge like mm-hmm. it it doesn't necessarily mean she actually cares about it. I mean, it it means more that she saw it as a challenge and has enjoyed herself through like manipulating him yes going back on on that statement a little bit she she genuinely wants to help him out as much as she can. So there's that. But I think her having feelings towards Breeze has nothing to do with her not having ulterior motives within Luthadel itself. I think All right, we got separate. some stuff to talk about. So We've got a lot to talk about there. <laughs> we're going to have to get into that. Yeah, okay. I'm just mm-hmm. going to let that sit there. And we'll, we will touch Fair. that bomb in 20 minutes. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it's probably a little bit longer than that. You're right. Cool. All right. So that gets us through PJ's predictions. It's the first time we've done this on the front end in a long time. And man, when you take a couple of sips, like aggressive sips of your drink, you feel it. There's a reason we moved it to the end. It's so that we made sure that we could make it through the episode. <laughs> yeah. Crossland. Okay. <laughs> well, we had to. Last week was so long. <laughs> I had to cut a bit. I six? Six predictions for me? I think it was six and two, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Needless last week was say, long. Last, last week, week was, was a very, long. it was a long episode. We're going to not try to do that this week. I had to cut one of my favorite parts because we actually weren't quite, we didn't quite connect our thoughts that well, which is we didn't really talk about the fact that during the fight, like Zane is kissing Vin while he's stabbing her like actively. Like we, we like glanced over it and like I was trying to say something and then you were saying something else that was really interesting. So I just leaned into the other thing and I was yeah. like, oh shit. And the, we got called out for it in the discord. And it's like, you guys didn't talk about that. And I was like, well, we started and then we got distracted by the other thing and it was so long that we didn't backtrack on anything. So yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah, it was such a good section. Yeah. But, we were kind of spoiled for interesting topics to talk about. Mm-hmm. So right. everything got diluted a little bit and we still went for like five hours. So yeah. And two forty eight, one of the longest main feed episodes ever. So yeah. And by that, I mean like book episodes like right. crazy. <laughs> cool. Anyway, moving on with that, we're going to move into our breakdown and we're going to start with chapter 48 here. 
So the the chapter starts with Ellen penning a letter as a last-ditch effort to convince Josties not to attack the city. Vin arrives in the window, bloody, bloodied and scraped, and shares an important piece of news, that she has killed Straff's Mistborn Zane, of whom is also revealed to him to be his brother, half-brother. This is the first time hearing of him, but he immediately throws that information away and seeks to take care of Vin, instead seeking out Sazed for assistance. Just glances over the fact, because he's like, fucking, my dad's a piece of shit. <laughs> it seems like. He doesn't say that, but it's mm-hmm. it feels, rolls over him. Yeah, I, I feel like it was kind of the same sort of feeling that we get throughout this as readers and that there's so much going on that it's hard to dwell on that like comment for for too long so i'm excited to see what happens when he he gets a chance to really sit down and explore that train of thought if that happens but i have a feeling it's going to be pretty logical and pretty i don't know sterile of a of a thought process really there's nothing sterile about straff venture yeah you know what i mean exactly yeah. no i know like, yeah. just <laughs> from zane's perspective yes <laughs> you just you teed it up man yes you're yeah. right you're right ellen's yeah. perspective yeah yeah just being able to logically parse out like okay he has all these mistresses they're they're alamancer farms cool fuck you dad moving on yeah yeah i think that's a good point i think that that is very much how he'll end up reacting to that at large is you know it's kind mm-hmm. of a non non thing for the dude so i do think that's gonna happen though there's gonna be a point where he really slows down and thinks about it and we we get to see that train of thought dwell in the idea that he had a brother to begin with and yeah had many siblings to to be you know yeah thinking back to the assassins for just a moment i don't think any of them were described as female i think they were all male that's a good point i think you're right I don't even remember if it got so descriptive as to even describe gender all the time, but it felt like it was mostly like some of it's just like the coin shots or the lurchers and like they don't really, you know, get into ah, it so much. Yeah, that's it. That's I'd have to look. It's I'd kind of ambiguous. Look. Yeah, but it doesn't it feels like whenever she's physically attacking someone, it's male. Not that that matters. I'm just saying that that's mm-hmm. what I noticed. I just thought about it. and I was thinking back and I'm like, all the times that I've read that scene, I don't think I've ever picked up anyone else of any other gender. Not that that matters, but yeah. That never crossed my mind, though. Sure. And if, okay. if you were to like ask me what was the composition gender-wise, I probably would have made a 50-50 split in my head. It just never yeah. really crossed my mind. Right, right. And again, I, it's not as though this is, this is something that like doesn't need to be described, but could be, you know? Yeah. So. I think making them all male, narratively increases the like physical impressiveness of vin's fighting capability which i think most of the people that she's bouncing off of are generally bigger and that's kind of right yeah the so i I wonder if that's the point or if that's just kind of like the way that we're perceiving it knowing like hey she's doing things that are fucking crazy let's assume that every everybody she's fighting is way bigger than her and generally that probably means they're male yeah with the i'm I'm thinking back here and like with the exception of sean alariel and alrianne and vin those are three female alamancers in the story so far is that it i think so because what's your face chris 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 sorry chris 
Yeah, Cliss. Is not correct? Correct, yeah. She's just a spy. Okay. Informant, I think. Is Amaranta? No, I think she's just a ska. There's nothing specified about her. Okay. There's Vin's mom. Potentially. I'm assuming. You're assuming Farrakemi, though. That's what you're assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Not Alamancy. I'm just trying to prove you wrong at this point. I'm pretty sure that's it. Tindwell, but also Farrakhan. Oh, uh, Mare. Mare's dead, but Mare. Mare, yeah. Was a, was a Tenai? I think so. Pretty sure Mare was a Tenai. Because she was looking... I can't remember. Because she was looking out and couldn't detect something or something like that when they yep. were invading the... Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Anyway, cool. So those are our four, you know, that we're kind of exposed to over the course of the story. But anyway, doesn't, doesn't matter. This is a random tangent that just popped into my head. So... There is something that we've been contending with the entire book, though, and that is the legacy of Kelsier and the heirs of the survivor. Vin directly confronts this thought, stating, I've realized something else about Kelsier. I always focus on the wrong things when it comes to him. It's hard to forget the hours he spent training me to be an Elemancer. Yet it wasn't his ability to fight that made him great. It wasn't his harshness or his brutality or even his strength or his instincts. It was his ability to trust. It was the way he made good people into better people, the way he inspired them. His crew worked because he had confidence in them, because he respected them, and in return, they respected each other. Men like Breeze and Clubs became heroes because Kelsier had faith in them, and you are far better than that uh, at that than Kelsier ever was, Ellen. He had to work at it. You do it instinctively, treating even weasels like Phylon as if they were good and honorable men. It's not naivete, as some think. It's what Kelsier had only greater he could have learned from you and obviously this is a big quote here but this is kind of i think absolutely massive as far as we can think about the way that these characters have stretched themselves to try to like fill the shoes of the survivor variously obviously vin more directly being like the heir to the church and sort of the mistborn and kind of the heir apparent there but then also as the leader to the crew and as a leader to people at large that Ellen has. And in a similar way, like Ellen's been a martyr, you know, for, for his own cause now of, of kind of doing the honorable thing, the moral paladin path. And then, you know, Vin, Vin's kind of going her own way and understanding power and how to use it best. And and she went down kind of the Kelsier rabbit hole and is now coming out on the other side, again, remembering what made her great in the first novel, which is, you know, kind of the, the trust in people and the, you know, you don't need to kill everyone in your path kind of mentality through the likes of Goradell and otherwise. Sorry, that was a rant. Go ahead. No, no, you're good. From my perspective, this more than anything completely changes the way that Ellen seems to, to interact with Vin at all going forward. This was his main source of insecurity. And when it comes to his leadership and his relationship with Vin, he always seemed to compare himself to Kelsier and sort of breaking down that comparison opens the door for some more direct conversation between he and Vin in, in a very, very positive way. And I can't really point to a specific instance textually, but it felt like they were always sort of skirting around each other in conversations about Kelsier and leadership and just that whole... I don't even know how to describe it as a topic. This just felt like a turning point in in their relationship and in Ellen's personal life. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what gives me 
what like I, I totally agree with you. It's it's as though this silent wall has finally crumbled, right? This this non existent kind of barrier that prevented them from directly interacting about a number of topics has crumbled now with this kind of understanding and revelation. I think to add into what you're saying a little bit, this is also the first time that they've even had a second to like really stop and talk to each other in a big way. And to even like confront some of these thoughts and emotions because Vin has realized that it's so important to do so and has finally came to terms with the fact that she needs to slow the fuck down. I think that that's another factor in the in kind of the breakdown of this wall. And in turn, like you're saying, that feeds into solving a lot of the insecurities that Ellen has and that Ellen's brought to the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Through all of his lessons with Tindwell and all of his progress as a kingly uh, character, there was always that insecurity sort mm-hmm. of living in Kelsier's shadow. And I don't know. We don't have a lot telling us that he's out of it now, but it there's just there's just a feeling to the rest of the section. Yeah. Whenever Ellen comes up that it feels like a breath of fresh air. It feels like he's sort of free. Yeah, totally. I I definitely agree. It does feel like he's been liberated of some great burden. And some of that I think is is ultimately the lack of clarity on on Vin and Vin and Ellen's relationship, which of course is then kind of given this it, it's given this fantastic high note that we get to start out this episode on, which is that Vin turns to Sazed and asks him to marry them on the spot. It's a heartfelt, incredible moment punctuated by its absolute simplicity that I adore every time that I've read it. His blessing after it as well is just wonderful to to read the little blessing here. Those who take lightly promises they make to those they love are people who find little lasting satisfaction in life. This is not an easy time in which to live. That does not mean that it has to be a difficult time to love. But it does mean that you will find unusual stresses upon your lives and your relationship. Do not forget the love oath you made each other this evening. It will give you much strength in the days to come, I think. And now our pair is married, finally, after they both realized what was important and what they wanted. So first and foremost, I think regardless of the fact that says it is probably the only one that's qualified to conduct this ceremony... I think it's super fitting that he's the one to be to be their officiant considering that he was he was there when they were introduced to each other. He was always Vin's confidant and as we talked about last section or last week he's her father figure more or less. So that's super fitting and I can't think of a more perfect way for the two of them to get married, just completely privately, without fanfare, and requesting the quickest and simplest possible ceremony. Like It is exactly what I would expect from this pair. Yeah, it is exactly what you want, because everything that they've done has been so counter- to sort of standards in a lot of ways and so to have this very particular religion be brought up and have these very particular kind of of notes surrounding it i do agree with you says it is the one that should do this it feels appropriate for all of the reasons it's that it's that like father figure marrying them it's the religious guy marrying them there's just all of these contexts that make says the right character in the right moment to to perform this act and 
it doesn't need the fanfare of anything else. And that's kind of something that they've also been learning is, you know, they don't need anyone else but each other. And so there's just that implication over top of the whole thing. And it's wonderful. You know, the city's about to burn, but they got married. So that's hey, cool. Yeah. Don't bring up that shit. <laughs> don't put that evil on them. <laughs> I, I, I will say I was expecting something, some sort of conversation, some sort of reaction Later on, like after this section, when mm-hmm. I, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but when Ellen is confronting Tindwell, when he just kind of drops the fact that they're married, based on how it happens, she already knows about this, and like time is time enough has passed that like the secret's out. But I really wish we would have heard that interaction first. Mm-hmm. You know, like for him to completely throw Tindwell off her game by like dropping the fact that they're married subtly. Yeah. My wife. Yeah. I think yeah. is what he says. Something like that. Yeah. Right. That would have been fucking perfect. And the sort of disarming statement. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would have been great. I do agree with you. It's one of those things. It's just like that little bit of satisfaction that you get robbed of. It's like yeah. we like Tindwell quite a bit. Tindwell's great. But oh, like yeah. at the same time, like, you know character conflict is also great it's super fun (laughs) right right it's a fun little it's a fun little bitey moment um -hmm. yeah with that we move into kind of our last part talking about this first chapter says proposes that the pair (laughs) propose get it wedding not (laughs) propose that the pair leave luthadel a familiar conversation that we've seen unfold last week as he explains the finer details of why he thinks it's a good idea for them but also gives them a seemingly false kind of quest punctuated with a lie about where exactly they're heading in the form of a fake map what did you think of sazed's lie i think he's doing everything that he feels like he has to do in order to get them out of the city right i don't know it feels kind of shitty like I, I i wish he could just be open and honest with them and tell them like exactly what's going on and like this is why you have to leave but Knowing Vin and knowing Ellen, that wouldn't work. They need to leave under false pretenses or they won't leave at all. So I'm sure if 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 that was revealed, they'd object to it. But in the long run, in hindsight, I think they'll be able to overlook that sort of trans, transgression from Sazed. But it feels, feels a little shitty yeah yeah i mean understandably so i i I definitely get that i think the there's an interesting conversation to be had between here and near where we end the week right where uh tindall at the very end is ending up talking about hope right and sort of the the general concept and conceits and the reason that she likes says it so much but i think right here we can also bring it up saying that like the reason that he talks about it later and that she brings it up as to why he likes him is because you know like he was giving away like idols of hope for the city to like stand behind and that's why a lot of these people feel down and dour but at the same time i think the reason that says it chooses to lie here is because he can also provide hope to his two friends to his couple of friends that he can save from the city and at this point he also expects tindwell to go with so he's like you know assuming that that's going to happen right but he's all about giving giving those he loves a chance to live a life that they deserve and because they are such exceptional people they'll make an exceptional impact so I, I think that there's a number of reasons that the, the lie is justified, but it is still 
shystery. What's fun, though, is that Sazed can lie because he is such an honest religious dude most of the time, and he, he can pull this out when absolutely necessary and when, I guess, he probably feels morally, you know, justified to some degree. So, fun little note. Yeah. Cool. With that, we move into part five, Snow and Ash. Any thoughts on the title? I mean, they're they're heading north, and Ash is still falling from the sky at an alarming rate, frankly. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> i mean it is alarming it's just sort of the general state of being in scotrail and it is alarming <laughs> I mean, yeah, both, I mean, both are true you, there's got to be a giant fire burning somewhere in order to produce this ash but no it, it's it's the combination of the world that they live in with this northern journey that they're embarking on so i think the title makes sense okay cool yeah sounds good i just always curious you know like if there's any yeah. are you are you picking up on hints or you or is there a hint to begin with you know what what's the what's the vibe what's your i think the words are just pretty i read <laughs> the book for the pretty words <laughs> um cool with that we move into chapter 49 we've got our logbook here right off the bit bat bit right off the bit right off the bat he is accustomed to giving up his own will before the greater good as he sees it. I think this is a little bit of an interesting tidbit because we can again see the parallels between Alendi and Vin kind of unfold here. Did you have any thoughts? This seems like a weird turn from like the general vibe that we've been getting from Quan about Alendi, which again, how many books are in the in these logbook sections for this book? How many sources? But this this feels like one of the few very strictly positive comments about Alendi that we've seen so far in this book. Okay. Right? Or am I misreading it? No, I, I think it's one of the few. I mean, he's he's been positive about Alendi in the past. But yeah, but this it was is always one. it was always with reservation and with like not justification, but with some sort of balancing element. Saying like, yeah, he's great, but he's a shitty person. Or, but he's not actually the the true hero of ages. Like, it, it was always with a qualification, I think is the word I'm looking for. Qualified, at. yeah, that's, that's a great way of putting it. I think that the qualification either comes before or after this one is the thing. Like, this is like kind of a bullet. It almost reads like a bullet list if you read the last couple of chapters in a row. Yeah, uh, that's fair. So... I, I agree with you. I just think that we don't we aren't seeing the qualification here because we have an abstraction of the whole thing as opposed to, you mm-hmm. know, in sequence. So this chapter in my head starts with a bang as Tinwell hops in and gets aggressive immediately with Ellen yelling at him for his tr- for his choosing to leave his people and choosing Vin and the potential for prophecy as an awful reason to leave the city and that she vin is following in the footsteps of her master kelsier before her seeking this position of grandeur and leadership and otherwise and martyrdom and godhood what do you think about her assertions assertions regarding kelsier and tindwell's claims of vin's madness so i think from the jump i think it was a mistake for Sazed to leave tindwell out of the conversation and i get why he did I get that he was doing the same thing for Tindwell as he was for Ellen and Vin, understanding that they won't leave on their own, so trying to force it to happen under false pretenses. But she would have been a great asset here. And ultimately, it didn't matter. 
they were gonna leave anyway. But there there is some comments here that Tyndall makes that I want I want to highlight a little bit in that these motivations very I mean it's easy to see or easy to claim that Vin's motivation is one of like seeking a pow- like seeking a seat of power or seeking something of grandeur or whatever but the comment about madness I think hits the nail on the head she is being persuaded by a constant thumping in her head by a an incorporeal being that's like haunting her peripheral vision at basically all times like she's being pushed in this direction and god i I just wish tindwell and sazed were like more aware of that aspect of all this but ultimately that doesn't matter a whole lot I think she's being sincere here in her anger and in her disapproval of the decision, but there's a little bit of me that hopes that she's sort of exhibiting that tough love sort of teaching method that she's shown Ellen throughout the entirety of this book. That would just make everything a little bit easier, right? (laughs) A little bit easier to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't there's feel like feel- I, there's a lot of feelings. I just don't know how to boil it down to a single. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't need to be a single claim. It makes you feel a lot of different ways. And I think that's kind of what's so, you know, what feels so frustrating about this moment, which feels like it has the potential to be our last interaction with Tindwell, right? Like it feels like because of the way the city's going, because of the way that everything else is, you know, we're, we're approaching a big climactic event and, this feels like it has the potential to be the end of our conversations with Tindwell. So to like go out on this very emotionally charged note between the two, considering the genuine importance that Tindwell has in Ellen's development and everything else, and even in Vin's development in a, in a starkly different way, this feels very directly confrontational, but based and driven in a reality and one that isn't driven by, you know, prophecy or mental assertions or anything else and you wish that you wish that vin would be open enough to share all of that right or to be more clear and transparent in what she's feeling what's going on but as such vin has been very removed in her own way in this novel despite being 50 percent of her pov yeah yeah i agree vin is an enigma (laughs) it is an enigma for sure did you have any thoughts about her assertions based on kelsier like dri- derived from Kelsier? I think it's kind of ironic to bring that up after this conversation that she had with Ellen. I think more than anything, like we, we get that dramatic irony of knowing that that relationship has kind of been, I, I don't want to say severed, but that, that influence has kind of been severed. I think she's done a good job of proving that she's no longer strictly motivated by what Kelsier would have done. I'd go so far as to say informed. It's a more like she's she's made a decision on it. It's not severed like the impact is still there. But I I think that's where like informed works a little bit better because it like gives you, you know, I I totally see what you're saying. Definitely see what you're saying. Um, I think you're right. It's it's not the end of that relationship necessarily, but it's a it is a. You know, it's another viewpoint. She finally has an angle on the whole thing. Right. So 
Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And it, it is, it is a sense of dramatic irony. I think for us as readers to like view this and be like, you don't even know, like you're, you're looking at a high level view that it feels a little abstracted from reality. So, yeah. However, when we get to, to a bit later, that's where I, I feel like I feel a weird reverting sensation that I'm not sure what to make of. So we'll definitely have to talk about that in a second when they leave the city. So I do want to talk though. We were expecting to leave with a party of four. We shrink to a party of three and then we immediately grow again to a party of four as Ariane joins the party, which is a shock. Of course, <laughs> we still have four people escaping the city, but one is completely unexpected. Any thoughts on her departure from Luthadel or the conversation about her and Vin being sisters and whatnot and kind of the, the sort of, you know, hashtag girl talk. Hashtag girl I mean, boss. Throughout all of this. Oh, yeah. God. Jesus. <laughs> it's a little, um, I'm sorry. Regardless of what we see from her later in this section, like I do not trust this person. It is so ex- like so outwardly reminiscent of Cliss the entire time. But somehow less hidden and more just kind of blatantly I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. She's she's simultaneously acting as innocent as possible and also kind of rubbing it in that like she's an innocent person here. I don't I don't know. Do you get what I mean? And maybe that's just like my own perspective as a reader reading into this, but it 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 feels like she knows that, hmm, how do I describe this? I don't, it feels like she understands that Vin doesn't trust her and isn't even trying to dispute it. She's kind of just leaning in, right? Yeah. 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 While also not revealing anything and just outwardly playing the exact role that she's been playing the other, the entire time without trying to convince her that she's wrong it's yes it's super funny because i think Ariane has done such a good job over the course of the story of actually having merged you know the alamancer side and her real side of her personality to begin with like she is she can be both people at once functionally the alamancy is a part of her and it's just a part of her daily life in a very normal way versus vin of whom has struggled with where does that balance lie for a lot of this story and it just shows again i think here where all Rianne can play up whatever she wants because, you know, it's a part of part of who she is. She is she's perceived as this courtly puff, and so she acts the part. And I, I think that's a little bit of an unfair comparison because Vin while trying to find balance between Alamancer, well, Mistborn and and her normal life, like non Alamancer life. She's also wrestling with the idea of sort of an imposter feeling when it comes to being a noble, like within the, within the realm of the nobles in this society that she's found herself. So she, she feels like an imposter in her personal life and in her extra personal life. So like it, as a misborn is when she truly feels like herself but that doesn't necessarily extend to being a mistborn acting on the behalf of the crown. And it has nothing to do with her interpersonal life. 
which there she's acting like a noble person, which is counter to everything she knew growing up. So like her identity is fucked more or less. And maybe it's easy enough to boil it down to the, like the idea that she can't find balance and Alrian can, but I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. It's definitely, I'm just using as a foil, right? For this is the assembled person. This is the disassembled person to your point. You're right. I probably am a little bit oversimplifying it, but I think that's really what I'm trying to pick at more is like, we've got the, we've got an assembled Alamancer with a real personality versus a real personality. is So aggressive. I didn't mean that. (laughs) Uh, We we have so (laughs) has their life together. Wait, that's not better. We, we get the point though that redrag it too hard so yeah 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 that was rambly and uh, mostly no i I think it made sense i don't think it was i was just not wanting to continue the continue rambling because i think you did a good job of summing up the point after uh capstoning it with a, a clarification joke as such so i i really like leaving the city leaving the city i think is really fascinating to me vin's language even uh, as she's talking to the soldiers that are kind of looking at them and, and kind of losing hope she says peace we are not abandoning you we are going for help and it kind of has this tone to me that seems really to pull on her own religiosity especially as she's referred to as lady air obviously she looks at or like the guards and people look at ellen and like think that he's abandoning them because it's a common thing for nobles to do in, in moments like these so it's not unexpected but for her it's a little bit different and there's this other other side what, what do you what do you make of this sort of moment i guess my rationalization of this is completely tied to her epiphany about kelsier Mm-hmm. And once she's able to sort of distance her own identity from his, she's able to lean into the lady air aspect of her of her public life without feeling suffocated by it. She's able to she's able to sort of see what she means to these people without it being completely shadowed by Kelsier. And I feel like I feel like the more I talk about this, the more it makes me seem like I'm vilifying Kelsier and I don't, I I hope that doesn't cro- come actually come across that way because No, it's the impression it's of his legacy, right? Like yeah. that's the issue is it's not it's not Kelsier himself necessarily, it's the impression that he's left that's this issue. And it's the weight and responsibility mm-hmm. that are that was left on the shoulders of all these people that are now trying to like keep everything going. <laughs> yeah. It'd be so. like if Luke Skywalker died and like people had to try to carry that on like, Oh mm. shit. Like our chosen one fucked up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah. So the absolutely crazy running away scene, I think is absolutely nuts and shows that Vin hasn't lost that inventive touch. She had with Alan Nancy from the first novel, highlighting her use of pewter powder dust to affect the ground and how it swirls. It's pretty neat. It is super neat. I think this is one of the few new, one of the only new sort of uses of Alamancy that we've seen in a while, right? By new use, do you mean, like just creative, like a different yeah, use something for the same innovative. powers. Yeah, I think so for the most part. I mean, there's some like there's some interesting stuff with Duralamin during the duels that that's right. going on, and like, but that's not you know it's weird because it's a augmenter, not a yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I guess the same could be applied with her 
interaction with, not even use of, but interaction with ATM fighting mm-hmm. against Zane. Yeah. I was about to say Reen. Of course you were. Of course I was. But it, it just, it was nice to see some innovation here. And I, I'm curious if this was something that she had used in the past and we hadn't seen it, or if this was mm-hmm. a strictly like novel idea in the moment. Sure. Yeah. It does make for an interesting question. I think it was something that she anticipated, though. Because remember, the last time that we saw her use pewter even a little bit was when she like threw out the bag and blinded the Inquisitors. Right. So I think that she's she's kind of got a general idea of like there there have to be other uses to like use clouds and stuff like this and you know mm. big elements because even the tiniest bit of a metal is effective. And she did have this like pewter dust prepared. So yes, yeah. <laughs> There's that. She she kind of knew what she was doing. Yeah. All right. So we we switch, of course, from the daring escape to that of Breeze. Actually, just to punctuate this a little bit, during the runaway, Ariane splits off immediately. <laughs> like <Yeah>. ditches immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I think is really funny. <laughs> it's like there's all this prep and build up and it's like, peace. <laughs> but um, just want to bring oh, that up as well. Annoying. Yeah, annoying. It's just funny. It is funny. Yeah. And, I mean, I can't say it was unexpected, but annoying, frustrating. <laughs> bah. Blah. I don't know. So, we we switch there, of course, from Ariane running away to her dear Breezy. <laughs> and the crew watching the, the group of them leave. There's this kind of large conversation about the nature of faith and religions between Sazed and clubs that happens here that Breeze is observing. And clubs leads off here saying it's very easy for you isn't it believing everything never having to choose and then we cut to say said i would say says it replied that it is more difficult to believe as i do for one must learn to be inclusionary inclusionary and accepting what do you what do you make of this conversation i think that this is a really it's a really fascinating diatribe on how someone like says can hold so many faiths and you know be so interested in the study of these things true theologian yeah yeah I I have a read on this and I'm not sure if my like description of it will actually make sense. So I'll let's see what you think of it, but sure. I think both of them have pretty good points and very valid points of like not having to choose versus like really kind of having to wrestle with trying to believe all of them. I think what it really comes down to is that Sazed, by his own perspective, chooses to believe all of these, which puts a huge burden on his shoulders. And I think that burden is what allows him to be so driven. I, I think it's what gives him the motivation to to seek all the information that he's been seeking and to spread the the knowledge that he's been gaining that he's been collecting because I think without, without the burden of carrying all these basically dead religions on his own, he wouldn't have the urgency or drive to, to actually go through with all these incredibly difficult journeys that he's been on. 
Yeah, yeah. I think to add to that a little bit, I, I think you're right. I think that the the reason that he feels so powered by a lot of these things is because he does contain knowledge and occasionally contradictory knowledge. Like uh, some of these religions contradict each other directly, and he believes in all of them because that that belief is is empowering to him in a way where it's not that not as though there needs to be one truth, but the fact that there can be many smaller truths within you know a whole is is relevant and important. I think that there's also something to be said about the sort of nature of says it at the very least being inclusive of all of these thoughts because there are so many different ways that people approach life that they might believe in different things because of the way that they approach things right that's why like in moments he feels like recommending religions based on the experience someone is going through at the time because sometimes a belief i i think that a lot of like modern belief systems are around giving you like a guidepost to solve a lot of these things or address like a lot of situations right like that's for the most part from a moralistic standpoint that's what a lot of religions do is they they provide guideposts for how you react to things and events and whatever else and they they differ based on different kinds of events that's just sort of reality and i think that instead the way that says treats religions is sort of as like almost single issues where it's like oh they have a really great idea about death and so i'm going to bring this up because it's incredibly relevant or oh this is the new single issue and for clubs, that's like, well, if you believe in everything, you believe in nothing. You've no, you've no true conviction. He's like, my conviction is actually in all things, is in people. And so I think that's where there's never a resolution to this argument, I don't think. And I don't think it's intended to resolve. But that does make it fun and chaotic and interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I don't it know. does. I like this central moral argument here. And this is kind of central to Sazed's character. Yeah. And it clubs. Is, it is the core of his character. Yeah. I, I find it so fun that it's clubs that is addressing a lot of these things and not Ham that's interrogating, you know? Like, Ham is the one who's like, wait, you're not going to ask a question about that when, like, clubs turns away? Because clubs is the, the kind of sour-minded man and has been from the very beginning. He didn't like soothers right away or rioters. He didn't want to be around emotional almancers because despite the fact that he was immune, he, you know, didn't trust him. Mm-hmm. He's very... <sighs> god something in his beliefs stuck in his beliefs you know so yeah yeah Neat. yeah i think so and and then we cut to straff and that man is not having a good time he wakes up in his bed he's really hot and sickly seemingly to have been poisoned by his late son zane venture he calls out for his mistress and antidote maker but notices something is wrong with the concoction that she's making when he burns tin that she's made it incorrectly. And over the course of the scene, we also get revealed that Zane had never actually poisoned her. It was something she, it was she who had been drugging him as revenge for his neglect. After she bore him children, she turns the man into an addict. And to me, this kind of feels like come up, come up in a way because he's kind of already been addicted on one side of things to the, I, you could maybe make the point or make the case that he's a sex addict, which I think is not unreasonable considering the way that he thinks about women as these objects and everything else and kind of desire and the way that he's sort of repulsed by certain things. There's just like this layer of sort of deviance and, and whatnot that you can kind of get that impression, but there's also an irony to, to bring this man down like an ex drug of his drugging him and turning him into an addict of something else and him never never understanding that or never being able to see it in front of his own face it's just it's lovely poetic justice from amaranta and like the whole reveal 
is such a perfect twist mm-hmm. because it at least in my head it it doesn't simply absolve zane of the wrongdoing it's not like oh it was me the whole time it just kind of offsets it mm-hmm. to a certain degree like it, it it's still it's still posthumously creates depth to zane's character being the one that's like pulling the strings to a certain extent uh, not not exactly not pulling the strings but i know you're getting at yeah but but he's involved mm-hmm. he's actively it, lying it, to protect her but also i think she says that it was his his insistence to be the one that's like blamed for it which is complicated and weird and fun to think about i don't know yeah yeah it makes them conspirators and the fact that it happened completely like behind our backs but we knew the fun part is is that this is such a good Chekhov's gun where it's been planted as though he's been solving these problems you know and like mm-hmm. zane's been maybe fucking with his tea and making him feel weird then he goes and gets the antidote and he feels better like whenever the pangs come on for addiction like that's when zane's around as though he's like timing it there's there's a lot of interesting discrepancies that pop up around this over the course of the story and with hindsight the potion poisoning thing becomes much more interesting yeah through amaranta yeah yeah it does but it comes to a pretty tragic end (laughs) (laughs) that's true it is pretty unfortunate god she turns blue he like lunges at her and strangles her to death and we don't even know how much time passed, like how long he was like choking her out, but he just kind of comes to and she's literally blue and dead. What a monster of a person. Yeah. This is where, this is again where like, I think the first book can be cut down to a movie very easily. The second book is a fucking TV show. It's got to be at least a couple of episodes. Like, it's probably like five hours long or something like that. It doesn't need to be crazy. But God damn, like to make all of this so incredible, you got to you got to give it the time. I don't know. I don't know. That's just me. Maybe. Yeah, I think you're right. This gets to that that miniseries cliche that we... It's Yeah, exactly. It's like, do you do the miniseries? Do you do a movie? Do you do a miniseries? This feels like a miniseries. First one, I could see cutting down to a movie pretty reasonably. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. with this one. I don't know how the fuck you would pull off everything that's happening here in a movie. Maybe it's you one could of the... do two. Yeah. Yeah. Pure of Ages is also almost two. So it's like, why aren't you just doing five seasons of TV? <laughs> uh, that's a jump. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Or, you know, like, well, yeah, fair, fair point, fair point. You could do the whole thing. You could do the trilogy in three seasons of TV, reasonably. I haven't read the third one, so I can't know, speak I to know. it. All that but... I'm saying is that I feel like that's that would be a method of handling it. Regardless, regardless, I do want to just say that I think Straff mixing his own potion as well to save himself is fucking whack, yo. And Amaranta being Zane's lover... That was something that I think we missed. It's yeah, another layer on top that. of this whole story. And that like, odd. Zane has a telltale like scar that he leaves on people that he that he beds. That's and and Straff knows what it is. 
so part of part of me doesn't think that it's specific to it being that people that he beds i think it's just a scar in the style of all the scars that zane has so it's like it's reminiscent of like how he like hurts himself dysregulated okay. you know does that make sense but i think he calls it like zane's calling card or something like that yes yeah and i think that I don't think that that's a reference necessarily to a bunch of bedroom lovers. I think it's just a, his mark on people, including himself. Does that make sense? Like it, it it could be more lovers. I don't, I don't think it's a strict implication of anything, but I think that it could be more widely applied to literally anyone that Zane interacts with in a personal level. I can be agreeable to that. I don't know if I buy it though. Sure. Okay. You know yeah it's fair i mean it's again it's not something we get a firm answer on so like it's it's all interpretation mm-hmm. my yeah. interpretation is that it felt more like a calling card for his own self-mutilation and then also maybe some other people yeah um, fair enough cool with that we go into chapter 50 here we start with the logbook of course I have no doubt that if Elendi reaches the Well of Ascension, he will take the power and then, in the name of the presumed greater good, give it up. Well, he didn't get the chance to do that, huh? No, he didn't. He didn't get the chance to do that. Mm. Think he would have? I I think he would have, yeah. I think yeah. I definitely think he would have, yeah. I think so too. I think I think that's kind of his vibe. Seems like it seems seems like the listen yeah the the follow and listen kind of a person in that situation with kind of like the the anxiety of divinity over his head especially compared to rashik who took up the power and then used it yeah anything anything else on this one stands out to you Mm. well it's making me think about parallels okay and history repeating itself and who is Sazed going to put forward as Vin's foil to go and steal the power from the from the well? How is Sazed going to get corrupt here? That's hmm. all I'm thinking about. I don't know why. Okay. All right. <laughs> Intriguing. Hmm. Yeah. Huh. So you're thinking that someone got sent to maybe steal the power of the well from Vin? Well, in in kind of a similar way, or like, is that what you're what you're going with with like a parallel? Or I guess I guess the parallel. If we're going in that direction, it'd be either Spook or Elland. I don't see it so much being Elland. So I think I think it's got to be Spook. Spook has kind of given off those jealous vibes in this chapter, but you know we've got we've mm-hmm. got shit to talk about when it comes to Spook's jealous vibes. So yeah, <laughs> I got I got I got some I got some things I want to bring up. So I think we're making a one to one comparison. Spook sure. is going to be the one that is sent by what? Not the herald, the uh, proclaimer. What was the name? Announcer. The announcer. Mm-hmm. Spook is sent by the announcer to sabotage the entire plan okay i don't think that's what's actually happening because we've we've been in Sazed's head Mm -hmm. but at the same time we don't know how things went down with kwan initially so i don't know yeah just things things are bouncing around in my head okay we'll see that makes sense Yep. bounce bounce away it's like a pinball machine but there's only one lever working 
It's just the right arm just swinging. Clack, 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 clack. Clack, 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 <laughs> but it's the top right lever actually it's the, it's the one that's higher up in the, <laughs> it's, the it's shittiest the one, one. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst one it doesn't fucking do anything most of the time uh, <laughs> all right so i i th- really think as we start to think about this chapter to me this one feels like really the calm before the storm in a ton of ways right you can you can kind of feel it we're jumping from perspective to perspective from almost everyone that we've had a chapter on or even like a section of perspective from with the exception i think of wellen who's that one soldier who survived the, the murder tropolis that is what happened at set but yeah. pretty much everyone else zane's dead Zane. Zane doesn't really count yeah but yeah but pretty much everyone else it's I, I really like this chapter. I think this is a fitting way to go out before we clearly head into a climax. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, it strangely feels like this should be a whirlwind of perspectives, given that we're seeing so many people, but it's so well grounded. Mm-hmm. And it all has its place, so it doesn't feel rushed or chaotic or anything. And maybe no. maybe part of it is the fact that this is a long chapter, comparatively. Yeah, there, there. It is, it is longer by like thirty percent or twenty percent than the average chapter or something like that. But it is each of these perspectives that we hop between feel very well weighted and feel like they deserved and earned their place inside of the book, True. variously. So I, I think that we're seeing all of the pieces fall into into the into their places in the puzzle. It's just a question of how is this going to play out now. It won't. It might not. We're just going to be left dangling. Left dangling for a whole book. Could happen. (laughs) I don't know, man. Not forever. This is the end of the story. This is the end, but... Um, Fun fact, if I remember correctly, I think that Brandon Sanderson was writing the last Mistborn book at the same time that he was writing the third to last Wheel of Time book. That seems like too much stuff going on. It does seem like too much stuff going on, doesn't it? Or like he was starting (laughs) to do the prelim work for the last Wheel of Time book when he was writing The Hero of Ages. Something like that. There's some some facet of that story that goes that way. Trying to remember. Now my brain is obsessed with it, so hold please. I have to double check the bibliography. Beep, beep. I am robot man. Beep, beep. Beep, beep, beep. Do, 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 do. Want the wheel of time. Wheel of time. 2009. And the other book also came out, and came out in 2008. So, yeah. Right at the same time. So I think that's when he had started doing that. Okay. Anyway, cool. Sweet. Done with that. Dunk it on that. I read, I wrote off this entire series back in high school because I didn't like the way the wheel of time ending started, (laughs) unfortunately. And now here I am talking about it over a decade later. So talking about it with many hours of recorded audio is to me, every time I bring this up to myself, this is a little bit insane, (laughs) but I mean, this whole uh, thing is a little bit insane. Let's be real. Yeah, but specifically an author that, like, Teenage Crossan was like, I'm never going to read another Brandon Sanderson novel. <laughs> and now I've read everything almost that Brandon Sanderson has written. Like, I'm very close to the, you know, non-YA side. I've read everything that he's written. So. You've spent more than half a grand on shit that he hasn't actually released yet <laughs> it's true <laughs> you, you want to put it into real perspective i've spent at least a grand on brandon sanderson in the last year yeah yeah all right tangent tangent 
done, thrown away into the garbage. We start this chapter with all Rianne and her bandits, Master Hobart and crew of whom she picked up on her way to meet her father. I think that this is a lovely perspective shift because we haven't seen a perspective from all Rianne, so this is brand new to get kind of thrown in here and gives us a ton of information on all Rianne and her attitudes, but also shows her skill as a rioter and what exactly can be done there and how you know a rioter approaches situations. She is so fucking devious and calculated <laughs> and like even like I've always like she's been on my radar as like this nefarious force from the beginning. But mm-hmm. this is even more than I'd given her credit for like how calculated she actually is. She does make a really good point throughout this that like how much care has to be taken with his bandit crew to not tip her hand too much because they could very easily realize that there's a lot more money in ransom than reward but ultimately like she she dances emotionally with everybody really really well yeah, and I think it's fun that she also plays in, you know, in a slight way into the intellect, being like, not everyone knows about allomancy. Like, that's not, it's not an obvious thing to everyone or understand all of the effects. They might know that these things exist, but if they're not exposed to it, they don't get it. And so these bandits are also blissfully unaware that they're being manipulated. And, you know, it just, it plays into that whole, the devious nature of Alrian, like you're saying. Yeah, I mean, yeah. fuck her. I don't like her. You like Alrian? I don't trust her. Don't like her. <laughs> oh, you don't trust her. Okay. That's a very different. That's a very no, different. No, both problem. are true. I'm not saying. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I guess, I guess PJ is, has drawn his first hard line in the sand <laughs> since Red Rising. <laughs> Fuck Orianne. <laughs> Specifically. No. Nope. 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 She's a, she's a, she's a rodent. She's a weasel. <laughs> She's uh, she's gonna worm her way into the into the story farther and farther, and I'm not gonna like it. <laughs> <laughs> like I know she's being set up to be like a recurring, maybe more main character going forward. I can tell. It feels that way. I just not a fan. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I love her perspective personally. <laughs> um. I think it's great. I think it does have that element of like it's it's written. She's written as an eighteen year old, but she feels kind of like a teenage girl. And so there's there's that element that feels a little off to me. But other than that, yeah. So I do want to move in though to the next portion of her part of the chapter here is when she speaks with her father. I, I think is when Alriand really shines the best. We get to see the mindset of a rider versus that of a soother that we see through Breeze and the subtle differences between the two, even in the way that they approach broaching conversations. I love I love being inside her brain. Like I said, it does have moments where it feels like she's a teenage girl, but at the same time, there are very clear moments where like a teenage girl, she knows exactly what to say to ebb and flow. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it that way, comparing soothing versus riding. But you are absolutely right. The The way they steer conversations is similar and so close to the same. Like, so close to exactly the same. But the attitude of the entire conversation is completely different. Yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was no, interrupting I didn't, you. I didn't really have a whole lot more to say there. So to to tag in, you know, and in like the general concept of allomancy is generally like pushing and pulling metals and internal and external metals, right? Like those are the two kind of grids that we have on the chart. And 
All Rianne doesn't ask, she says. And Breeze asks and pulls it out of people. And I think that mm-hmm. that's one of these small, fantastic character delineations that has came to these people based on their elementic ability. Um, yeah. What's super funny is that it's actually the other way in the chart, but it feels like the characters are doing that because they know that they can manipulate the other emotion, right? So they can, you pull to push with, so you, you like personally say one thing and then you, you pull on the emotion the other way. You tug it up, you, like they, they know how to dance their elementic emotional dance. I really, I, I want, I want an interaction similar to Vin and Zane, where they go back and forth in perspective a little bit, where mm-hmm. you get to see sort of the same interaction from both perspectives throughout it. I'd like to see that between Breeze and Alrian. <laughs> I think that'd be a cool interaction. But. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I like that idea. I think that that would be a great thing. Just that way you get like a feel of like, what's that alimantic chess match like? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But... I don't know what position, like what situation we'd have to get into in order for the situation to really arise for that to be a satisfying way to like go about the story. I feel like the satisfying way for that to go about the story would be the bedroom in this circumstance because of the two of them. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like it's kind of, Maybe. it would be, it would be a, be a big, a big shift, point. big departure, but like that would make for an interesting moment. I think it was Daniel Green who tweeted something like, if you give me a very intricate magic system and two users that have it, you have to give me a sex scene with the two people using the magic system because you know they're getting kinky in the bedroom. Like, you know they're they're fucking doing backflips in the air. Like, you know that shit's going to happen. So I, I just thought when I read that tweet, I was like, you're right. And that's hilarious. <laughs> why aren't why aren't you showing us scenes that we know exist? Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. We know that this is real. Stop hiding it from us, cowards. Mm-hmm. I think he said. I think he called authors. I think he, in general, he's like broad stroke, like yeah, how dare you, cowards? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was I thought it was great. So Alrianne moves on though, and she gets through the conversation through a conversation with old daddy set without ever using her riding on him. We also find out that she didn't have an ulterior motive. She really was there for breeze first and foremost. It kind of complicates things in an interesting way. You know, and I I say this as though like breeze was the priority, I guess was kind of more my point. I see you reacting obviously to me saying daddy set. Please don't make that a thing. (laughs) Please don't let that catch on. Oh, no. This is exactly what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode, though, as far as the ulterior motive. Mm -hmm. And I don't think her caring genuinely about Breeze absolves her of having an ulterior motive outside of that. I think both can be true. Yeah, definitely. That is true i guess when it when i was like digging even at the idea of ulterior motive when we were talking about it with the prediction at the very beginning of the episode i wanted to say that more as a uh, a like precursor to having this conversation and to talking about the fact that like i think she's bringing up the shit about like looking for the atm not as a spy for her dad but as material that she could use as general manipulation like she's looking for things to use to benefit herself because it's not as though, like, her dad didn't expect her to come back with information or anything like that at all. Like, it's not as though she was intentionally a spy for Set, you know? No, I, 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 
my thought, my assumption is that she she is the one that is truly going to be the person in charge of this army. She's going to be manipulating Set, much as she is going to be manipulating the entire power structure of Luthadel. Like she is going to be the main player in this army. Hmm. So it's not like she's being a spy for her father. She is being a spy a spy for her self. For herself, really? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to write that one down? Where is that going? Uh, right here. <laughs> Under Daddy Set. Yeah. It goes right Fucking with Daddy, Daddy Set so that we have to read it off. So we move from Alrian into Ellen's perspective and find Ellen and Vin sleeping together. It's not even a cut to black, but instead it's a fade in on the morning after, which I think is a really clever way of avoiding that trope. But it does bring into question for me at the very least, if Spook can hear them having sex outside while he stands watch with his tin burning while Vin burns her tin for entirely different reasons. I'm sure. Of course he can hear them. Um, I think our only hope for poor Spook <laughs> is that this is his kink. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> I he's kind of in a world of hurt emotionally. Uh, <laughs> no. I'm so sorry for you. I think what's worse is that he's probably tasked with listening, not to them, but just in general as like keeping watch. Yeah, this is, you know, like <laughs> there there are two there are two two like answers to this question. Either way, Spook can hear, so it doesn't really matter. But like, are they being silent because they know that Spook could probably hear? But in reality, like he's just hearing the ruffling of like leaves on the ground or whatever. Or <laughs> instead, <laughs> just being loud and raucous because they know that he can hear. <laughs> like I don't know if like you know that someone can. I he, where's your shame level? <laughs> <laughs> I, first of all, I feel offended for Spook. Of course, yes. For you to say that he would mistake even the sound of quiet sex for rustling leaves well, on, the, on ground. the ground. On the ground, I'm imagining like the. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. I'm not. Uh, yeah, that was that. You're yes. Okay. He is. Yep, I'm sorry, Spook. Tin eye. He's gonna fucking hear it, Crossland. Yeah. There's so many comments that I want to make that I'm just not. <laughs> It's not as though our show isn't R-rated, but every once in a while I have to like catch myself and be like, I don't want to talk about tunas slapping, you know? Do you think he masturbated during it? No. <laughs> Definitely not. How dare you? This is really why Tinwold needed, or like Spook needed a fourth person on the trip, is just so he could have someone to talk to to drown it out. You know, like, that's the reality, is Spook is just going to walk as far away into the woods as he can. <laughs> You can't get far enough for that shit. Yeah, and you can't burn it in half strength, so <laughs> what do you do? I mean you could just stop burning. <laughs> right, right. One would one would assume they'd have they'd work out like a tent flap protocol where it's like if flap twice we're gonna have sex, please stop burning your tin. <laughs> and then he's just aware, I guess. But that's yeah. she could just force him to to burn aluminum. Did we determine I forget if we determined that all Alamancers can burn aluminum or not. Oh, I think we decided no. I think but it's we no. Have no. Yeah. That hasn't come up textually yet, though. Correct. Yeah. 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 
I, I so, don't disagree. I but it makes sense to me that they wouldn't be able to. Correct. Yeah, because generally you can only burn the one metal. So that would make Because if they aluminum. could burn aluminum, they could also probably burn duralumin. Yes. Which yeah, because they're like... also hasn't come up. Right. Interestingly enough, though, in Alamancer, I will say this once again. I have said it many times before, but I will say it again. An aluminum misting is the worst kind of misting. It's just so sad. <laughs> Yeah. It's just like, oh, so you can't do anything. All right, got it. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. You would never know that you are one. Yeah. Unless you were, like, in somehow, like, completely surrounded by other Alamancers who could perfectly explain what it felt like to burn something, then maybe you could figure it out. But what a shitty, shitty winning. Yeah, like, right. Win the lottery, become an Alamancer. It's fucking aluminum. <laughs> or Duralumin. Yeah, right. Either way. Oh, yes, I can burn my Duralumin really quickly. <laughs> what, does, what does burning Duralumin with Duralumin do? Just, hmm. Here's a very obscure alloy that I somehow got a hold of. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Funny. Okay. So moving on from our, our sex scene quote. Not really, but like, it's more of the problem is, all right, I do want to bring this up a little bit more. I want to dig in just for a second more. The problem is, is that it's not a sex scene, right? Like there's, there are some sexy things that kind of happen in tangential, which is like Ellen's acknowledgement of, of Vin's body and like kind of the, the post marriage marital breaking vow, blah, 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 sex, blah, blah, blah. But there, there like a single thought about inviting spook into the bedroom, which there's I find no thought about inviting spook frankly into the bedroom. insulting. It is insulting to spook, I guess. <laughs> I don't. And to the you, reader. What do you What do you want from me here, PJ? <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you want me to answer this question. <laughs> I want smut, Crossland. <laughs> well, <laughs> reading Brandon Sanderson is not the way to read smut. Let me be clear. <laughs> we'll have to go back. We'll have to go back to Pierce Brown and just reread the final part of uh, Dark Age. Anyway, no, I. I just, I am a little bit, it's funny because the perspective that we get is one of like the positive, like the sex positive, like, oh, blah, blah, blah in the morning, like cupping the hand. Like there's a lot of affection and romance in these moments or cupping in the head and like the, the sort of way cupping that she's fun. Cupping the hand. Calm. I said cupping the hand. I meant cupping the head. <laughs> Drinking quite a bit. We're, we're fine. We're fine. Dude. We're more drunk on this episode than we have been am, in the last couple. Papa. <laughs> I am buzzing. <laughs> um, but the core point here being that there's a lot of like romantic description but it feels like because we don't have sex from other characters perspective we're just left speculating about spook <laughs> like i really feel like my attention is completely drawn away from the sort of romantic interest and directly towards oh is spook a creep is he like in like what what do we, how do we evaluate this i'm not going to assume that spook's a creep i'm just saying it's left to the imagination of the reader and my imagination is wandering <laughs> it's exploring untold cornel corners i think the term creep is frankly insulting and sorry he's just a man of particular tastes discerning tastes Let's get back to that spook with the scarf, huh? <laughs> Giving the scarf away. Mm. Where is that scarf right now? It's that like a... I don't want to say what I was thinking. He put it up his butthole, didn't he? 
I thought of butt floss towel immediately. <laughs> that was my first. <laughs> is butt floss <laughs> towel. <laughs> Why? <laughs> immediately, that was my first thought. The moment that you said it, I had to admit to it being shit. Why do I get the feeling that most of this isn't making the air? As I sit here crying. <laughs> Although maybe it should because it's really funny <laughs> and it is it's good commentary on the on the bit. <laughs> very good commentary, Crossland. I mean, I'm not saying but that it's intelligent towel. commentary. I'm saying it's good. <laughs> it's commentary. Yeah, right, 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 right. I mean, you don't have a bluff, butt floss towel? Okay, so you hang up two towels in in <laughs> in the bathroom. I mean, I, one is technically butt floss. there are two towels in the bathroom. <laughs> one of them is mine and one of them is Kaylin's. Oh, so you don't have a third towel. That's what you're telling me. You don't have a second towel rack. I mean, they, we have their, we have our own towel racks. No, but, oh, you, oh, so you each could have two towels because you're I missing guess, out on your butt floss could. towel. Yes. So hers is a hook on well, the door. Maybe she doesn't need it. Mine is maybe a she's confident. Towel rack. Yeah. So you have space for a second towel for your butt floss towel. It's great. You just sure. front to back, back to front, front to back, back to front. You do a little dance. Why would I use a second towel for that, Crossman? <laughs> oh, you're gonna you're gonna put the butt floss <laughs> towel on your face? Okay. <laughs> um, you also have to get a brown I, towel for the butt floss towel. All right, maybe maybe this kidding. is strictly devil's cup material, but maybe it's not. Do you have a <laughs> routine no. for drying yourself off after a shower? Of course. You do? Of okay. course. Yes. I do too. Yeah. But I've been... Kaylin thought I was weird. That's interesting. For, for like movement by movement, I dry myself off the, the same, same way, way every yeah. single time. Yeah. Same. I feel like that's not that weird, but nope. I've been made to think that I'm a weirdo for it. I think some of that, I don't know why. Do you have towels that have different textures on either side? No. Okay. I think that is an important thing to get in your adult life, and here's why. I have a soft towel on one side and a coarse towel on the other side. The soft towel goes for the soft parts underneath and nothing else. And the coarse side goes for literally everything else. So I hate soft towels. No, but I never feel like you can actually dry off with a soft towel. It's not a fully towel. soft towel. I'm saying a softer side of a towel. Okay. Right? And you dry you dry the genital area, and then you flip it over and use the other side for everything else. That way right. you also isolate, you know. You should be cleaning yourself well enough. You that, are that cleaning yourself, matter. but all that I'm saying is on top of that, you ex you double you double isolate. <laughs> I don't want to rub my balls on my face. That's never a well, move. Okay, but my face comes before my balls in my drying procedure. Do you do you only use the towel once? No. Good point. <laughs> I know. That's, that's entirely no, the point. But it doesn't matter because I'm clean. No, it does. <laughs> anyway, point being, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Spook would butt floss. With, with that old scarf. Also, core point being, I think that it's a smart thing to do. It's not necessary. You can just instead try to memorize the sides of your towels. But if you have a system for the sides of your towels, like you should, 
I'm taking your, <laughs> your like, I dry myself exactly the same way each time to the step up where my towel <laughs> is directly implemented into my process. Yeah. Good point. One might call this a neuroses. Continuing. <laughs> I don't remember where I was going for that. But cool. All right. Moving on from that ridiculous towel side <laughs> tangent, of which is most definitely devil's cut material. Holy shit. Move to a scene that I, I find very interesting. We, we we cut from this moment of, of like spook in the, in the bedroom in the tent and sort of the fighting naked comment and everything else that kind of happens in that moment. You know, some flirtatiousness, which is nice considering I think it was Lindsay also who brought up that the sex in this book is kind of like a cold shower or like even the sexual awakening or anything like that. And it very much is like there's no... There's nothing that spicy about it, but as spicy as we get is the like fighting naked spicy. moment. It's even mentioned here, but Vin summons an axe into her hand as though she's Thor and cuts down the tree. And it's, it's fairly remarkable, but it's unremarkable for her. Like this is not, this is not something that is worth any kind of commentary. This is just sort of her understanding her powers. But I like what Spook says and the kind of commentary that we get from Ellen and Spook about the sort of capabilities that Vin has, like even just as a standard Mistborn, the, there's this sort of awe that it inspires, which is two tr- two strikes to take down a tree and then kicking it over. Like that's fucking wild. Mm-hmm. But Spook says she has a way of making the rest of us feel a little redundant, doesn't she? Yeah, he has a good point. She is very much a one woman army mm-hmm. in a lot of her aspects of life. A lot of context. a lot of ways. But I can I can completely appreciate his sentiment here, but that doesn't make him a total useless piece of garbage. Like he seems to kind of be implying, and I know that's not. I know he's he's more making a a commentary on how just adept she is in everything, but like even though she can do everything, that doesn't mean that vin or that spook isn't useful you know like she can't Mm -hmm. do everything all at the same time all at once so there's redundancy but it's it doesn't mean it's redundancy all the time right yeah yeah it it, i i think it's really just a show of force more or less but it's it's the fact that this remarking on sort of these extra capabilities and i think it's really easy for us to get lost in and i think that this happens a lot we we talked about this in in red rising to various degrees but being in the original trilogy mostly stuck in a gold's head is isolating and confining and being mostly in a misborn's head is in in a very similar way isolating and confining and that's why i think that Brandon is doing a very deft job of making sure that we see so many different perspectives of people that are inside of this world and also making sure that we remark upon the capabilities that seem normal in under some people's eyes, but aren't under a lot of others. Mm-hmm. So cool. We cut from Spook and Vin, excuse me, we cut from Spook, Vin and Ellen back to Straff being surprised that he has woken up. <laughs> it's a wild ex- little exchange in a moment that happens between him and the guards where he reflects on his two sons diverging paths, successfully removing Vin from the chessboard and deciding to take Zane's advice on how to proceed with Luthadel as he breaks camp and retreats. Do you have thoughts on the f- note that we get from Straff in this kind of culminating storm of a chapter? I mean, first and foremost, from Luthadel's perspective, this has to be an amazing sigh of relief. In the last couple days, 
two of the three armies have retreated. Like they're still in danger, very imminently. <laughs> but from the general populace looking out over their city walls, they've been flanked by three different armies, and two of them are gone. Strategically, that means one of them's going to attack, which sucks. But most people aren't gonna like make that conclusion, you know. So yep. morale, I feel like within Luthadel would probably be on the rise after seeing Straff withdraw. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on the Luthadel side of things. What'd you make of the sort of subservience to Straff even when he was sick, and kind of the way that like no one was willing to make a move against him? The, the kind of political game there. Well, even Straff makes note of it. They don't realize yeah. that Zane is gone. Right. And that proves to me that Zane is such a powerhouse, even in the ranks of Straff's army, that Straff is kind of untouchable because of sort of the implied retribution that would come. And the fact that Zane would be the next in heir, or the the heir in line mm-hmm. for the for the throne. So, as long as Straff can maintain the position that Zane is still around, he's safe. Which is a really weird sort of position to be in. Yeah, I, I think I want to just clarify one little thing on what you said. I don't know if anyone knows that Zane is Straff's son, but they know that he has a Mistborn, which is, you know, it's still a it's still a power thing. But I don't think that they're aware that he is the next in line because that's very, very obscured. It feels like even because otherwise I feel like Ellen would have heard, you know, before Vin says anything. You right. know what I mean? I, I thought that was the implication, though. Was that I feel like it's less of an open secret. Draft because it would mean that Zane would come into power. I thought that was explicitly said. You may be correct, but my assumption would be that they don't know that it's Zane. They're assuming the Mistborn would come to power, and there's some okay. reason that the Mistborn isn't. Does that make sense? Strap is does. saying Zane. I just feel like he's keeping the identity of his Mistborn a little bit more of a secret. Okay. Otherwise, I we can... would have known openly yeah. about him a little bit earlier i can see that yeah not not and that big of a difference and maybe not real nuance but no it is nuance and i i think even the idea of obscuring zane's name from it and just the idea that the highest ranking mistborn in lieu of any actual next of kin would be the one to take power mm-hmm. makes sense in this society yeah, right. Right. They respect power most of all. And it's not like the general, We we as far as we know, the general isn't a mistborn. So it's not as though he would take the power instead. So mm-hmm. he wouldn't yeah. have the ability to face down Zane slash the mistborn. So. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's our quick jump back into Straff's perspective. We then move to Sazed as he stores his energy in various metal mines in an attempt to provide himself with the capabilities he might require in the coming battle. We get quite a bit about Farrakimi here that I think is fantastic. We get some stuff about like gold mines, storing health, and sort of the, the way that a lot of these things are stored, a little bit of the mechanics, and, and a couple of rules that we hadn't really heard beforehand. What do you think? I mean, I am always going to be happy to eat up every little bit of mechanical lore that there is. 
Mm-hmm. Like every little breadcrumb nom, 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 nom. teaching me about what are the rules <laughs> here for it. On a personal level, I felt like this scene was really, really well written and evoked so much emotion and just understanding in a very strange way of what says it is going through and just felt visceral mm-hmm. talking to this weakened physically and mentally body. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. This, this guy person. that's been made really small by, yeah. by intent, you know? Yeah. Just, it felt, I don't want to say satisfying because I don't think that's exactly the right term for it, but it, it felt rewarding in a certain extent to a certain extent like we we got to really see the the mechanics at play of what makes ferric me ferric me yeah i definitely agree i think that that's a great way of a great way of looking at the scene it's it's fairly one doesn't want to say simplistic but it it is fairly accessible and it it makes something that was very mysterious a lot more clear and so it's satisfying in that way as it lends clarity to our understanding like we got we we understood that he could store wakefulness but now we know that like he is he's standing up being very intentful with the way that he's like trying to keep himself awake because if he lies down he'll sleep and he'll sleep for an extended period and that's That'll the will store wakefulness, but it will prevent him from storing other metals and blah 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 blah. Like there's just this layer of sickliness and slowness and senses that are being dulled. You just get the fun part about restricting them is that when they come to life later, you get this sense of description and activity, and it breathes something into the scene when when they come back on. So I, I think that's fascinating from a from a writing perspective. Cleverly done, Brandon. Cleverly done. Agreed. Uh, Sazen and Clubs, who have been chatting a lot this week, chat briefly about how they helped Vin and Ellen and how unlikely it is that they will survive a Coloss onslaught. Sazen and Clubs briefly address their confrontation from the previous chapter without an apology, of course, but instead we see Sazed proceed to offer up another religion, that of the Dadrada, and their worship of their worship through art. And in turn, we're reminded again that Clubs was an artisan before all of this began. What did you make of the offering of the medallion, that wooden medallion, and kind of everything else inside of the scene? And also, Clubs' denial of the medallion. That's an important little... Um, yeah. Throughout the whole thing, I really couldn't help but smile. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's good to remember that Clubs was this artisan. And it was honestly a point that I had completely forgotten I think mainly because it was never really highlighted to begin with. We knew that he he ran this woodworking shop, but we never really saw him individually work on anything. It was always it was always the front, you know. So getting to sort of reveal some of his actual like deep down feeling backstory was fun. You know, this is. One of my slight criticisms, and I we I, I like to view everything as very top level and like what is the author intending? This feels like shorthand for showing us these kind of things beforehand. This is a tell, not a show, in kind of a, a pretty substantial way. But what it does do is it does it it tells us about clubs, but it shows us about says it and the reminders of the religion and other things like that. So the scene still feels good because it balances the show and tell. But it does feel like more of a tell on Clubs' side, wherein it is a, a show and a, a show of hand again for Sazed, kind of returning to form and presenting religions. I can agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a small thing, but that's like, it's one of my nitpicky, you know, 
bits. Yeah. I didn't feel it was like a a huge transgression in my eyes. No, Um, no. And yeah, it's like, how are you ever going to show this kind of thing inside of this novel that you've already written to be very complex and to tell this very complex story without making it extraneously longer or making the trilogy five books or like whatever. Like there's how do how do you do it in such mm-hmm. space and time without significantly altering what you've already done? So you, some some sacrifices have to be made and sometimes small characters are told, not shown. But right. you can't can't do it all perfectly. So yeah, I I really appreciate the conversation about the religion itself of the artisans and and the way that clubs kind of denies that medal, I think is or not rather, not the medal, but the medallion is very interesting. So uh, I do want to bring up this idea when he, when says it is confronting him. I just really like this quote yet. He felt an energy. There was nothing like simple contrast to awaken a man's senses of indomitability. And I love this because this is part of the reason that we do something like this or that like we talk in the first place is like, okay, like we're, we're here to have a conversation. We're here to open, open dialogue. And, and sometimes like when, when you're dealing with someone steadfast, it can, it's it's a fun thing to like confront and understand someone's nature and to try to confront that. I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. Sometimes there's folly there. Sometimes it's let's deep dive into this character that's really not that deep to begin with. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? But most of the time, it's rewarding, mm-hmm. worthwhile. Yeah, definitely. Just like that little line. It's just it's nice. It's punchy. Yeah, yeah I like way. it too. So we find ourselves, though, inside of Sazed's perspective, back in Keep Ventures' glorious ballroom, and Sazed has this reflection on Villette and Ellen's path to where they are today. I like that he calls her Villette in this moment because he's, you know, referring to kind of the, the sneaky, spooky side where she was being a spy. In the very center of the room, however, the group gathers around a map from Marsh that previously was used to plan out the city attack and everything else and had all the descriptions of where the secret Alamancers were, blah, blah, blah. And we get some interesting perspective on Doxon from Sazed. What do you make about his remarks about Dox's plan and sort of the aggressive nature in which he has not only taken over the crew, but is, appears to be positioning himself as this sort of rebellion leader? So, despite this sort of perceived disdain for Dox and his sort of takeover of the crew, this is more or less exactly what they were planning on doing. Right? Like, this is exactly what the plan was when Ellen and Vin left the city, was that somebody was going to have to take over and, like, call the shots in in Ellen's absence. And maybe this is happening faster than Sazed expected, but, like, it it just felt obvious that Docs would be the one to be, like, to to take over. I feel like we've talked about this before. I, I feel like this was not a hidden motive, you know? Yeah. I, I'm not so much. I don't think that like what I'm trying to pick at, or even what Brandon's trying to pick at is that this was hidden. This is very much like Dox's intention and he feels bad because he was the Lieutenant who was passed over. I think we talked about that like two weeks ago or something like that. Right. Um, sounds about right. But this, I, I think the reason that says it is addressing it so specifically is because he feels like it is off from the intent of saving the city and is instead a lot more self-serving as opposed to like the actions that Doxon is taking in the moment to have these like group of 10 scribes and whatever else. And sort of the, the steps that he's been taking are more self-serving to him promoting himself as a leader, as opposed to 
the good of the crew. He doesn't have the same nature about him. Yeah, but I think a lot of them would agree. Tindall, most of all, would, I think, agree that there has to be somebody at the center calling the shots. Yeah, and I I don't disagree with that. I think... And I don't think Sazed does either. I think he just disagrees with some of the underlying intent there. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I don't, I, yeah, fair. I don't feel like he's trying to pick at, like, Sazed's not upset that he's the leader. He's upset that he's planning another rebellion at the same time as being the leader. But he also just told Ellen that he could start planning the rebellion from outside the walls. Yeah, but. I think that's because he trusts Ellen's capabilities to do such a thing. You know, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, you're right. You're entirely correct. He did tell Ellen that, but that's because he believes in Ellen in that way. He doesn't believe in Dachshund in the same way. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of what this is poking at is like the faith in doc, like the crew members are good at what they do. And I think especially when we talk about Tyndall and Sazed's conversation, we can get into we get into some of those nuances, right? Like they need hope. And so in a lot of ways, like Kelsier was hope, Ellen was hope. Dachshund is a planner. He's not hope. He's not a rescue. He's not a savior in the same kind of way. Like he doesn't have mm-hmm. he doesn't have that juju about him. He doesn't have those vibes. <laughs> yeah. You know? I don't know. So did you have anything else in Dachshund that you wanted to say before we jump into Tindall Sazed? I don't think so. Okay, cool. So moving into that conversation that happens between Tindall and Sazed, man, it bears a lot of kind of sad markers that of the crew basically waiting to be saved and sort of this longing for like, I don't mean this super disparagingly against Dachshund after we just had that conversation, but like a true leader, like the the core leader that they used to have. Tindall really says something beautiful here that I really appreciate that she says, hope is never wasted. And she and Sazed share another tender moment talking about love and why she holds it for him just shortly thereafter. Do you, do you, God damn it, stop starting. Do you know why I love you, Sazed? Because you never give in. Other men are like strong bricks, firm, unyielding, but if you pound on them long enough, they crack. You are strong like the wind, Always there, so willing to bend, but near apologetic for the times that you must be firm. I don't think any of your friends understand what a power they had in you. Yeah. This is great. Like, I I mean, front to back, this is a fantastically affectionate moment. It's empowering for Sazed. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's lovely. I think the way you described it as tender makes a lot of sense. And I love her description of strength and the the difference between those two, the brick versus the wind. But for me, this felt like an incredibly poetic moment, calling back to Sazed's insistence that hope is one of the most important aspects of life and kind of being the reason for his drive to study religion in general. Mm Mm-hmm. And is sort of an evolution moment for Tindwell because that's something that she pushed against when that came up. Yeah, yeah. I think this this speaks to Tindwell's tendency to push against things with her instincts as opposed – like with her historical knowledge and with her logic as opposed to considering other implications and to considering the power of belief 
and of of individual capability. She's generally leaning on logic and fact as everything, and this is her acknowledging in that moment that you know when she says hope is never wasted. It's it's this idea of like yeah, like like you're saying, PJ. It's like I can believe in something. I can you know it's back to that fundamental drive of Sazed. Cool. Anything else? Anything else on on this chapter? For the most I part, I don't think so. Cool. All right, we end this week on the ominous rhythm of war drums beginning their beat. Bum, 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 bum. That's probably not what it sounded like. <clears throat> I also realized I wrote rhythm of war drums as like a meme, and I didn't realize <laughs> that I wrote it at the time. And now it's like a there's a there's a meta context there that's kind of funny. So with that, we end the week as we usually do with a logbook entry here. And it's a short one. And so I have made one final gamble. Of course, PJ, we we know what this gamble is, right? In context of the logbook? Yeah. Sending Rashik? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So. It's a, kind of a big decision to call it one gamble. But, you know. Well, it's a final gamble. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, yes. So we know what this means. So heading into next week, we maybe have some some gambles to pay off ourselves. One might say a different form of the word gamble is gambit. Uh, cool. Wager. With that, folks, we have spread spread out this question of the week for four weeks now, five weeks. I'm five. maybe going to surprise <laughs> you in the next two episodes and read read the answers to the question. But for now, we have been unable to gather them. We've had very busy weeks, etc. I will be pulling them together, though for one of the next two episodes because we are going to be recording the next three episodes on a condensed timeline. They'll be coming out weekly, of course, as always. No no shock there, no change, but we have to record them very quickly. And so to, to end some of those episodes, we're going to be doing that. We want to ask you, though, to send us in questions or thoughts or, or anything about this book to talk about in our finale episode, of which we will be recording in roughly a week. So from hearing this, send in any thoughts that you have, anything that you want to hear us talk about, and I'll filter through those and pump them into that final episode. We are chatting with that episode with the foxy reader from instagram reels phenomenon fantastic bookish community member that we've become really good friends with over ever since we started basically and it's it's been fantastic to watch her create awesome content we wanted to have her on so we're gonna be chatting with her at the end of next month slash well rather excuse me in the middle of next month but yeah i think that's where we're going to leave you for the week no before we do that we have to tell them what we're going to read next week how dare you pj next week we are going to be reading (laughs) chapters 51 through 54 again you know only a couple of chapters but the next week's longer so it is next week is our penultimate episode covering the book itself so now's now's the time to get in get in that good section so that's where Mm -hmm. we'll leave you for this week and now i get to say my piece huh ah yes yes thank you (laughs) As always, to Tim and Andrew, our producers, for making sure this show happens. You can check out the links to everything in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, website, social media accounts, all in one very convenient location. Yes, and beyond that, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at Words Whiskey Pod. 
and on Facebook as well. Also, you can reach out to us at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com or patreon.com forward slash wordsandwhiskey. Thank you so much for the support. It really means the world to us. Can't wait to talk to you next week. Bye.